Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, we journey through the labyrinth of Muppets. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and uh, someday you'll find me, the Rainbow Connection. And uh, I am Thomas Mariani, and you know, this all just sounds familiar, vaguely familiar. Yeah. <laughs> but welcome everybody to the Double Edge Double Bill, in which uh, every week Adam and I cover a good and a bad feature uh, that we picked at the end of the previous episode that's related to a topic that kind of ties into a recent release. And this week, uh, because Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is coming out on Netflix, uh, which I'm very excited about, uh, you know, stop motion and all that, and del Toro doing anything, especially given his collaborators, uh, Patrick McHale, who is the guy that did Over the Garden Wall. Like oh shit! Yeah, yeah, so, I'm still got it too. I mean, a stop motion, like you said, and also Del Toro, and then now I didn't see, I didn't realize that. That sounds pretty cool. You know, uh, we kind of rolled over like what we were going to do to coincide with that release because we figured maybe doing another stop motion episode. But um, quite frankly, when we did our last stop motion episode, it was so hard to do a bad pick. So uh-huh. we were just kind of like pulling our hair out. And then maybe we figured like another Del Toro episode we kind of contemplated. But then we kind of narrowed down on this. Um, and by we, I mean I made this executive decision. Because if you know me, you know I love everything related to this particular topic. Because uh, Pinocchio is produced by, along with Netflix, uh, the Henson Company. Uh, so we figured, you know what, let's do a full-on like Jim Henson Company episode. Um, which we're covering two movies that Jim Henson actually worked on. But we had opened the field to the Henson Company in general. Because obviously it didn't stop when Jim Henson passed away. His uh, son Brian Henson has been heading that for the last several years. And uh, yeah, it's... It's interesting kind of going back to these because, you know, I'll, I'll let you go for a bit, Adam, uh, th- to talk about your sort of history with sort of like that, the Henson productions and stuff like that, because I have a lot more to say. What if you let me go first and I talk for like two hours? <laughs> well, <you> <laughs> fucking embarrassed. Um, anyhow. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I grew up with the Henson Company. I grew up with the Muppets and, you know, all that stuff. I, I absolutely love the Muppets. Um, you know, one of my favorite movies growing up was The Great Muppet Caper. Uh, now, I still really like it. Obviously, you know, as I got older, I prefer the original more, but that doesn't mean that Great Muppet Caper isn't good. But yeah, I mean, the Muppets have been a mainstay of since my childhood, and I still look forward to, you know, checking out the new stuff. Uh, even that short-lived NBC show, which wasn't very good, but it was still fun to watch. Like, oh my God, it's the Muppets on screen. You know, it's just, yeah, the Muppets are badass, dude. I, I fucking love them. Now, go ahead and your diatribe. I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna do your taxes you're gonna do a couple of chores you've been putting off for a bit uh but yeah um i can still remember um one of my first sort of 
interests in after like i always loved movies since i was a kid but one of the first times i remember learning about sort of the process of filmmaking was picking up a a jim henson biography when i was like i want to say in third grade and that's when i found out a lot of the stuff about like oh when like the muppet movie when he kermit's on the log it's actually jim henson like underwater in a tank and all this other stuff and i was immediately fascinated so and i just dug into all the other like jim henson sort of stuff i literally did a report i think in 5th grade about Jim Henson that had me, like, with a big poster board and everything. So I've been such a massive fan of not just, like, obviously the Muppet stuff, which I loved ever since I was a very young kid. My dad exposed me to, like, you know, the movies and the reruns of the Muppet show and all these other things. It's interesting just considering the fact that my entire life has been post-Henson, because Henson obviously died, like, in 1990. I was born just a couple years later. But I had such a fascination and connection with him and the Muppet and Henson-adjacent stuff that was coming out around that time in the 90s as well. I think that stuff really gave me my fascination and interest, especially in, like, practical effects and animatronics and, you know, that kind of Muppet stuff. Like, all that along with, obviously, the theme parks, which kind of segues into Henson as well, given the Muppet Vision 3D attraction over there. And, yeah, I just, I love the fact that not only was Henson such, like, a great technical craftsman, but also when you consider all the various different aspects of his job being, like, he was a performer, where he would, like, sing as these characters, or, like, actually, you do the puppeteering and all this other stuff, like, every single detail where, like, he would do all that, but also, like, write and produce and direct so many of these things. It's such a, like, multifaceted, fascinating, talented person that Jim Henson is, like, truly a once in, like, a generation kind of talent that it's it's such a bummer that we lost him so early and how much you can see people trying to replicate either like what he did directly with like Brian Henson's been trying to do since the 90s and then eventually what Disney's been trying to do since like the 2000s with the Muppet characters but even just like on a craft and filmmaking level like so many people have been trying to like chase back to like that Henson era with like even like modern digital technology and trying to create like new modern like sort of characters in that fashion we're, we're still just kind of chasing that sort of investment you have in like these fabricated characters that like Henson sort of perfected for me even in like lesser projects projects I'm not as huge on at the same time the scope and the wonder and just the the fascination like it's been very rarely like duplicated or even like gotten close to what Henson did when he was actually working <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what he said. <laughs> yeah, Brian Henson, you know, still doing it. I agree. It's not to the same quality, maybe, as a Jim Henson was. But, I mean, it, it, he's still he's still going strong. And then you had, you know, I think one of the best ever sort of suit puppet performers is Carol Spiney, who was fucking great, too. But, yeah, the, the art isn't really – I mean, it's still going, but it's not nearly what it once was. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's such a thing where, like, even, like, uh, with, like, Carol Spinney, he obviously worked with Henson, because he had was doing Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch ever since, like, the late 60s when they started Sesame Street. But, yeah, it, it's so fascinating, especially if you, like, look at sort of the entire span of his career. I would definitely recommend, uh, there's a YouTuber called Defunct Land, who usually deals with, like, theme park stuff, but he also talks about TV, and he did, like, a whole sort of mini-documentary series about 
the Jim Henson that is like incredibly comprehensive, but also very entertaining and fascinating. You just sort of see the arc of his career in particular with how much he was focused on like, oh, I don't have a lot of time in this world and I want to do as much as I can to entertain as many people as possible from like the Sesame Street era, then entertaining the smallest kids all the way to as he started, you know, trying to experiment and grow near the end of his career. He was really trying to push it like, no, puppetry isn't just for kids at the same time. I can make big elaborate stories that aren't just focused on like the ABCs or whatever. He knew that puppetry was kind of like what we've said previously with like animation. It is a medium, not necessarily a genre. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. And I, I think that's absolutely uh, correct and true. I mean, look at sort of the puppeteer effects and everything that we've seen in horror movies and and science fiction movies and everything of the you know eighties and seventies, eighties, nineties. I mean. I, I absolutely agree. It's it's an art form. It's a medium. It's not just. It's not a genre. Absolutely agree. Yes, and uh, we'll be talking about two interesting sides of that. We'll be talking about the two features we picked at the end of our previous episode, uh, where uh, we'll first focus on the good pick, uh, which I had, which was the original Muppet movie from 1979, and then we'll go into your bad pick, Adam, the highly controversial bad pick of Labyrinth. I know everybody out there, don't throw tomatoes at him yet. Let him give a chance to explain later in the show. (laughs) Uh, But we'll get into all that in a bit. First, though, let's focus on the Muppet movie. Now available from Jim Henson Video. Hollywood, the pot of gold at the rainbow's end. Hey, we're all going to Hollywood. You want to come with us? Hollywood! It's time to grab your pack, stick out your thumb, and hitch a ride for the adventure of your life. Hey, wait for me! It's Jim Henson's The Muppet Movie. We're moving right along. Footloose and fancy free. There's Fozzie at the wheel. A bear in his natural habitat. A Studebaker. Kermit guiding the way. Turn left if you come to a fork in the road. Fork in the road. I don't believe that. And a roadside distraction named Miss Piggy. Wow. Hogging the spotlight. <laughs> now it's all aboard. Everybody on to Hollywood. As the Muppets hit the jackpot. Prepare the standard rich and famous contract for Kermit the Frog and Company. And now Hollywood will never be the same. Stand by. Here we go. Now you can own the Muppet Movie on video cassette. So the Muppet Movie uh, came out June twenty second, nineteen seventy nine. Directed, we should note, by uh, a man named James Frawley, uh, who was uh, like British TV director. He had worked with like the Monkees and stuff like that, and he was brought in to direct this. He's one of the only examples of like an outsider directing a Muppet project, because uh, he kind of the Henson tend to keep keep things like kind of in house with certain like directors. Even if he wasn't directing, he'd have like people like Peter Harris who did a lot of the Muppet Show and stuff like that. But they wanted to get Frawley because this was their first experiment with doing like a full-on feature film, especially in real locations with these Muppet characters that weren't, like, on a TV set or, uh, you know, in, like, a t- on a talk show set whenever they bring the Muppets out there. Yeah, the, the Muppet movie is, you know, one of those sort of big, massive pillars of, like, everybody's childhood ever since 1979, where it's just everybody loves this movie. It's sort of considered the pinnacle of the various different Muppet movies. Would you generally agree with that, Adam, that the Muppet movie is, like, the height of the Muppets in cinema? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, there's the sequels. I, I'd say at least the second and third one are really great, and they kind of start deteriorating uh, from there. But yeah, the first one is just an absolute perfect movie. It really is a work of art. It, it's just 
absolutely a staple of, I'd say everybody from, like you said, 79 to maybe 90 of their childhood. I mean, it's just, it's such just a perfect, perfect movie. I fucking hate it. Zero out of five. <laughs> Wait till he talks about Labyrinth, everybody. Oh. Uh, but, but um, yeah, I mean, I would generally agree. I think, like, I rewatched a bunch of the Muppet movies, like, in prep for this. And what's fascinating is definitely that, like, I would say, short of the previous Muppet movie we covered, Muppets from Space, I would say there's not, like... A, another terrible theatrical Muppet movie. I think you get like varying degrees where it's like, I like like the Jason Siegel one or Christmas Carol, which was post Henson and even Treasure Round, I would stick up for. But um, I think with um, the Muppet movie, I think the thing that crystallizes that makes it sort of the perfect uh, cinematic Muppet movie is the fact that like with the other ones, like even the, the only one that Jim directed was the great Muppet keeper. That one is so much more focused on like gag after gag kind of thing. It's as opposed to like this one. I think Muppets take Manhattan has, a bit of this but this one especially does where like you have a lot of those jokes that are very funny but also there's a lot of time to just kind of like have these felt characters breathe in the situation that's going on you have like it's a movie that's kind of leisurely paced and it allows like you know at the opening where you have Kermit just like singing that song with the rainbow connection it is just like when you look at what's going on, on screen it's just like oh this frog puppet is singing the song but he's like actually embracing like what his hopes are what his dreams are in the middle of this like swampy area and it's a very slow delicate kind of like gradual build up to like a close-up of kermit on this log and you think of like oh all the technical stuff that's going on there like like i literally said jim henson is underneath that in that water tank doing the puppeteering for kermit it's amazing but the sh- movie doesn't treat it like that it just treats it like here is this character living in the moment and trying to, like, think about where he can go from here and get out of this, like, little swamp area and get to Hollywood. It's absolutely wonderful. And, I mean, the song, obviously, it was nominated for an Oscar and everything, but it is a beautiful song. It's so cute and sweet and sort of sets the tone for Kermit, especially, like, his personality and how, what Kermit is. And this is one of those type of movies where, like, the celebrity cameos are fun. You know, where you're like, oh, look at, oh, look at, oh, they got him, they got him. Where, you know, there's other types of movies where the celebrity cameos are just self-grandizing garbage but like this one there's so much to love about this movie like i said the celebrity cameos are really fun the songs are all really good credit to paul williams and kenny asher who wrote all the songs amazing paul paul williams is the fucking piano player in sleazo um (laughs) that illustrious father there yeah (laughs) but uh it's just the songs are great. The character, all the character interactions are great. There's running gags throughout the whole thing that really work and pay off. It, it's so expertly done for such a silly concept that, you know, it, these random, basically, I mean, puppets all go to Hollywood to become movie stars and create a movie and all this. And you're following this. And it's just, it's such a ridiculous idea. That's what I've always loved the Muppets, that humans treat them as just, it's normal. And they don't, for the most part, uh, you know, there's always occasionally a character who's like, oh my God, what? But I just love that people just accept it, that, yeah, that's these weird freaking little creatures running around and singing songs and dancing and trying to take meetings with Orson Welles. Well, right, like, nobody treats it as, like, an impossibility, but they always treat it as sort of, like, an annoyance. Like, what the fuck is the frog and the bear doing yeah. here? Not like, oh my God, what are you doing? You're just like, oh God, they're here. Why? Why? We're not inviting you in here. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Beautiful, cute, controlled chaos, the whole movie. It's such a just masterpiece and insane that it's 
just that good. It is that good. Wait, I think it also helps that, like, you mentioned something with, like, you know, the celebrity cameos and all sorts. I think what helps all of this is the fact that the actual initial shot we get is of, like, uh, Sadler and Waldorf going into the studio, and it's like, oh, they're screening this. Like, this whole thing is a fictional movie within the universe of, like, the Muppets that we know. That little detail which is like serves as like a fun sort of like a meta narrative thing also kind of serves to like allow you to suspend your disbelief when like we fully break the fourth wall we're just like oh this isn't like the exact true story it's to quote Kermit like sort of approximately how the Muppets got together <laughs> so it's like oh this is their version of their story and I think that makes it a lot more fun when you do end up getting like the very big breaking the fourth wall gag. I think this movie like introduced me to like aspects like that like breaking the fourth wall or to any of these celebrity cast people like I like all these cameos I had no idea who the fuck any of these people were <laughs> when I saw this at like five like no way I knew any of these people but then like this is my introduction to so many of these people like James Coburn or like all the Mel Brooks people like Mel Brooks himself Madeline Kahn Cloris Leachman Elliot Gold all these people popping up who would you say is your favorite of the celebrity cameos by the way um if it's not Steve Martin I mean yeah that's kind of a given I think we would both say Steve Martin but if there's yeah. a second place if there's because you can't you can't beat fucking just like ugh, excellent choice yeah you're right <laughs> I really like Cloris Leachman. Um, and, you know, I don't know. Milton Berle's fun. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably Milton Berle if I can't do Steve Martin. I mean, I gotta say, like, it's probably Orson Welles for me. Because it's well, such, like... You know, because it's Orson Welles, right? Well, it's it, not it, it's just lunacy. that. It's not... I mean, but even when I was a kid, like, I didn't know who Orson Welles was. I'm just like, who's that big guy? I don't know who that is. But just the way that he looks at the Muppets is very confused for a second. And then he's just like... Prepare the standard rich and famous contract for Kermit the Frog and Company. Like he delivers that with gravitas, and it's like you're you're given a contract of like a fucking bear and a pig and a frog right. and everything else, but he treats it with the utmost seriousness. I know, and I was even I made the joke while watching it. You know, this time with um, my wife and daughter. Like, I love that this group of freaking you know creatures and animals walk into this guy big like studio head mogul's office and he's superimposing and then he gives them a budget and the rights and all this stuff to make that movie entirely by themselves like there's no other studio involvement i just think it's so funny well yeah and it has a bit of like a real life element to it because he's playing lou lord who was an approximation of a guy named Lou Grade, who was the guy that gave Henson the ability to make The Muppet Show in England. He was like a big British producer guy who just was like, you know what? I like what you're doing. You have a full season. He gave him 22 episodes based on like talk show appearances and shit like that. So it's just like, oh, it kind of fits. There's a lot of this sort of like autobiographical stuff even in this as well. But like as a Muppet nerd, you kind of get those elements. It feels like it's at the same time as the Muppets telling their story. It's Jim Henson telling his story through these characters, too, because it's about like, oh, picking up all these people along the way. Like he kind of did with like Fozzie Bear, Frank Oz or like Richard Hans Scooter, all these recent Muppet performers that he picked up along the way and, you know, made a part of his crew. Right. Exactly. I, it's just it's so fucking great. I, I mean, you know, and also I, I just want to talk to you, my favorite sort of thing that always has stuck with me ever since I was a little kid. And it might be my favorite running joke in movie history is Sweetums. <laughs> um, I absolutely love it. You know, 
you want to come with us? We're going to Hollywood. Hollywood! And runs away, you know. And just, <laughs> wait, I want to go to Hollywood! And the whole movie is chasing him on foot. And then it just pays off at the very end. It's so fucking funny to me. It always has been. And I love the Sweetums costume. I mean, and the head. It's so fucking funny and cute and just works on every level. I, I just, that and Animal taking the pill and growing to giant size. Uh, but yeah, that's the thing about this movie. You know, rewatching it today, there's always a gag. There's always something funny happening. Like even when Piggy's imagining her and Kermit together and, you know, they're going through on the boat and all this stuff and he's chasing her through the field and he trips. I think he gets up and run after her and he looks back while he's running to see what he tripped on. Like, it's just, it's so funny. It, it just, there's never a dull moment. Also, the bit during that fantasy sequence where, like, like they're running toward each other and Piggy grabs him and then he's, like, looking around as he's being dragged. Like, how is this possible? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and, and the thing is, it's like, you know, obviously it's documented how you even said it, how they did the log trick and even how they did the bicycle trick with the crane and the invisible, like, tension wires and all this stuff. But it's still never not like mind blowing to see the the shot of Kermit riding the bike, or him on the log, or just a lot of the stuff they're able to pull off with this. The fact that you know, obviously, it's a simple thing where the the car is being you know pulled out like a trailer, and it is on a trailer actually, and they cut out the bottom of the car, and all the performers are performing from underneath the and car. And there's like a little person whatever. basically like driving. In the yeah, truck. right. Exactly. And you totally get it. And it, it all makes. But when you watch it, it's just. No, Fozzie Bear's driving that car. Yeah, especially the shots where it's just like you're on the street and you're seeing them in the actual car. Right. It's like a shot that would be so casual anywhere else. Like they're treating it as just like any other movie would. I think that's the thing that Henson loved doing was like, oh, let me film this thing like an actual movie would be like. This feels like a 70s road movie. At the same time, it feels like a Muppet movie. And whenever they try and do those sort of cheats around or like those shots, it's not about like, look at this, isn't this fucking cool? Like, I think even The Great Muppet Keeper has a few too many of those kind of sequences where it's like Henson kind of showing off the technical aspects of it. As opposed to here, it feels like him and Frawley are like, no, let's actually shoot this casually. So then you can be amazed, like, that's why everyone was so amazed by, you know, Kermit on the bike. Because they treat casually just like, oh no, he's just entering on the bike. Meanwhile, anyone in the theater's like, how the fuck is that happening? What? <laughs> He's riding a bike and we don't see the wires? I think you actually hit it on the head there. I think that is what sort of makes this movie and some of the other ones work so well is that it's treated just like they're actors. Like it's a dead series. They're actors giving a performance and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's so fucking well done. What a smart way to do it. You like you said, you grow to actually like love these characters and care about what they're doing and, and care about their plight and adventure and sort of the romances and all that stuff. Like you genuinely get invested in these silly, silly Muppet characters. And it, it's just the that's how you know like there wasn't anybody or has been anybody like a Jim Henson, because nobody else has really been able to pull that off as well to where you know, they're so iconic, these characters, because they're treated dead seriously and because they're treated just like everyday people or however you want to put it. But it's just, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing that, you know, you can watch a movie like this and you 
you care about fucking Gonzo and the chicken. Like, you know, you, well, you Gon- Gonzo's the big element for me where like in this movie, like his sort of arc is so fascinating. Where like you usually meet him with another great example of them kind of working around the sort of like they can't show this, so they do like a fun gag with like the two cars like nearly hitting each other, like, oh my god, and then it cuts and it's like Gonzo coming down, and it's like, oh, the co- his truck is on top of their car, uh-huh. which is so fucking funny. But then like later on when he does like the whole balloon thing, that's just like in you know, in context in any other like kid movie just be like oh this is a fun sequence we're like oh no he's caught up in the balloons he's up in the sky and everybody's chasing after him and trying to get him down but then the payoff of that is him like later on with the uh, i'm going to go back there someday song basically being like that was the first time i've ever felt like natural was being up in the sky and i wish i could go back there and it gives us like maybe the saddest song in the whole movie (laughs) it's so sad and beautiful but heartwarming in a way that like no kids movie would ever do today. The minions are going to like stop doing banana shit and just sing like a beautiful tragic song about like wanting to go someplace they've never been to basically. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's it, like I said, it's wild, dude. It's fucking wild. It, it, that hey, I okay, well I guess that's was going to be my next question. What is your what is your favorite song in the movie? Um, I mean, it, it, so many stacked stacked on top of each other because, like you know, Rainbow Connection's great. The I'm going to go back there someday. The Moving Right Along is an amazing song as well. Yeah, it is. Good. I, moving Right Along. Yeah. Yes. But um, I think I would have to say I'm going to go back there someday. If nothing else, because like in the song, like something that's like not in any of like the ro- digital or physical releases of it that I love is when Fozzie and Piggy join in. I think is like one of my favorite sort of like Muppet moments in any of these like movies or TV specials or whatever, where it's like all of them kind of like suddenly like they all know how this song goes and they're immediately like kind of jumping in with it. And it's such a beautiful, sad, but worthy song that leads into like my favorite scene of the movie, which is Kermit talking to himself, which is another, once again, like a weird, like self-reflexive scene that would never be in a kid's movie of just like, I let them all down, but I shouldn't have promised them that. And it's like, well, I mean, when you started this, you promised yourself something that you were going to go out there. It's such a beautiful little moment that like Uh is like speaks to everything I love about Henson and everything. But um, what about, what's your favorite song? Honestly, probably it would be Rainbow Connection now, but when I was a kid and I used to sing this song so much to drive my parents and my brothers crazy, but it's, can you picture that? Yeah. The electric mayhem. We haven't talked much. Yeah. About yeah. <laughs> so I crazy. used to sing it all the time and I would just walk around the house going, can you picture that? And it would just drive them nuts. Uh, that's probably my favorite. I mean, I get it. Cause like, that's a great sort of like nonsense song, but that makes no uh, sense whatsoever. But it's, like, such a fun, catchy song. And those characters are so, like, endearing. Like, they were probably, like... Because like, Animal became such a big thing, but I love that whole Electric Mayhem ensemble. With, like, I love the whole Keith, group. Yep. Suit, Janice, uh, Floyd Pepper. Like, they're such weird, like, and they're clearly, like, you know, it's the most closest Henson could get to, like, drug culture in the Muppets, yes. but they're just, like, they're so stoned. They're all high on weed or acid all the time. Like, there's no question. But I love the fact that, like, these are people who, like, on paper, like, I could never see them interacting with, like, Kermit and Fozzie. I love the fact that they have a weird connection. Like, even when they, like, connect over, like, the script and everything, it's just like, well, you know what? We love this froggy little dude. Let's help him out. And that great line Dr. Teeth has, too, where it's just like, oh, we won't join you right now, but maybe when you're rich and famous, we'll exploit you for money. <laughs> right, exactly. And Kermit's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I agree. Animals, Animal, of course, is kind of like the standout one, just because of some of the bits. Not not even in this movie, but the caper, you know, wow, man, chases around, stuff like that. It's just, Animal's great, but yeah, I love the whole group. But that's the thing about the Muppets, period. Like, there's so many that I love for so many different reasons. There's a few that I'm not crazy about. Uh, like, I've no, never been a huge fan of Ralph or, like, Scooter or anything like that. Like, they're fine. But, like, you know, Waldorf and Sam the Eagle and, you know, uh, Zagonzo, of course, but the entire Electric Mayhem and Rizzo the Rat. And there's so many just great little side characters. Uh, I mean, yeah, Kermit, of course, is always Kermit and Piggy are pretty much always the mains. And they're great characters. They just, I totally get why they're the main. But it's such a rich world. Like, even like I said, yeah, I'm not crazy about Ralph. I'm not crazy. But even Ralph has some good, like, one-off lines real quick here and there. I mean, he has a duet with Kermit in this movie. The Hope right. Better comes along. It's one of the great songs in the movie, too. And it's so interesting because you, when you realize, like, oh, wait, that's Jim having a duet with himself. Yeah, it right. It feels, exactly. like, so natural. <laughs> Like when they piss, pick up Piggy and she's hitchhiking and, and you know, just, oh, I'm Ralph, the dog piano player, and I, oh, never mind. <laughs> like, he just doesn't even bother to finish his story. Like, it's just... My, my favorite bit of Piggy is in this movie, which is after, like, her big karate sequence where she gets real, like, Mel Brooks and all his cronies and stuff. Yeah. And then she gets the call from her agent, and then she just hangs up the phone and looks at Kermit and says, um... Goodbye, and then she leaves. (laughs) Is like my favorite bit of Piggy, and it's such a great example of like a big thing that like makes all these characters work so well. Is like all these performers at this time had so honed their ability to like be these characters after like three seasons of the Muppet Show, and even before that, like specials and stuff. Like it feels like their own sensibilities are coming through their hands into like these puppets. I think that's a big thing that's missing from sort of the modern. Um, especially Disney era stuff is that it feels like oh we have to kind of protect the sanctity of these characters as opposed to like like the new modern performers a lot of like add aspects to them that's what's so great about like when you look at Gonzo like in the early Muppet show stuff he's like a very smaller weaker meeker character who talks like this and then he became a lot more zany and interesting as it went along to like this point like I, I think that's what makes those characters like flourish and makes them so memorable is that like these performers are allowed to like add Add aspects to them as they like keep practicing performing them in various different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, and, and I just, another thing too that I really love in this movie is sort of the ending credits where the scooters going around asking everybody what they thought of the movie, and there's yes. sort of like interactions with everybody. And the best one is Sam the Eagle. Like, what'd you think of the movie? It was sick and weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's so fucking stupid. It's such a one-off funny line. There's something so endearing about this movie. Like, even, like I said, I I love it. Me and my wife and my daughter watch it. My seven-year-old daughter watch it. And she just loved the whole thing. Sat there glued to it. When it's over, she's like, that was so cute. Oh, how cute. Like, can we watch more? It was like too late, but like, yeah, we'll watch more. Maybe tomorrow we'll watch the second one and then the third one and just keep going. But yeah, it's just, it's such a unique, cool thing that these type of movies don't last a long time, you know, or you don't see them often to where they have such staying power and can be enjoyed by just every generation for the most part. Like my parents liked this movie. I like this movie. My kid likes this movie, you know, and it, it, God willing, her kid will like this movie. It's if she has one, um, but it's just movies that are this good and this genuine and this expertly crafted just don't come around too often. And this is just one of those 
just gems of cinema. I mean, still there's, and that's the thing too, you know, a lot of movies that, you know, are classics and stuff like that. And then people still like might have some problematic elements here and there to them, you know, okay, well, that's the time they were made. This isn't like that. This is just, this is one that you don't have to, you know, explain to some you know, younger kid while you're watching, like, oh, times were different then or anything like that. It, it's not in here. This is just an expertly written, crafted, fun road movie. It, it's just, I can't say enough about it. Yeah, and, and I think a big aspect of that, I think, is, is also just, like, the way that these sort of Muppet characters interact with, like, all the various different humans. Like, we haven't mentioned him for some reason, but the sort of main human character we get throughout most of this is Charles Durning. As uh, our villain Doc Hopper, who's amazing, uh, all the way from like the moment you see him in like the sort of uh, you know white Southern gentleman get up to I love him the mo- the moment that awful commercial starts for the Frog Legs restaurant. He opens the mouth. He's like, "Hi, I'm Doc Hopper." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's such a great example of like that guy could have like in, in so many other Muppet productions. Like what is so key is if you have a human character who stays throughout, they have to believe like the actual central conflict that's going on with these characters. And you believe that that dude is just like, I need to get that fucking felt frog to advertise my goddamn restaurant or else I'm cooked. So I need Austin Pendleton to help me out and follow that frog all around here. And I think he, he does that so beautifully. And I think that's what like any of these people do. Like even one of the other great cameras we haven't mentioned, uh, Richard Pryor. I love the bit when he is trying to convince Gonzo to give him the balloons, where he's just like, here's an idea. How about you give her the whole bunch? And he does like a weird smile, like, eh? Why'd you do that? <laughs> like, it helps sell the fact that it's just like, oh, these people are sincerely believing that like these little things are real. And I think that translates to anyone else who's watching. We're just like, if those humans can believe that they're real, I can believe that. Even I think that's what helped even when I was a little kid. I'm sure your daughter also had this where it's just like, oh, these guys just like exist in normal reality. And that allows us to endear us to them further. Right, exactly. There there wasn't I don't think there was one question of like how are they doing this or how who's doing in the voices or or there was not one time. And, you know, every other thing we watch, she'll ask, how do they do that? Who's doing this? Who's play- under the mask? You know, if we watch a superhero movie or something, she wants to know more about it. Not once with this. Not one time did she need any more information. She just went exactly with it. Like, yep, these are real characters. And, you know, I didn't even think about it. But, yeah. Wow, that's fucking wild. Because my kid is super inquisitive when it comes to movies and stuff. But yeah, this one, she was just on board. Yeah, and like it goes all the way down to like the, we haven't, we'll, we'll start wrapping up because we have an old other movie to talk about. But Ugh. the finale of this movie is like one of the best endings for a movie in general. One of the great examples of like, you know, making a movie kind of like, let's get the whole gang together, finally get our shot to make this movie. And I just love that like it's all this buildup and like all the props and all the sets are being built and everything's put together. And then within like 30 seconds, Seconds it falls apart just um, massively, but it's fine because they're just like, well, we're here doing this still, and we make mistakes, but we can keep on going, leading to that amazing shot where just like the rainbow comes in and you get 250 puppets. Yeah. It's one of like, it, it's genuine like movie magic in a way that like that term gets used a lot, but it's like this is genuine like a movie magic trick. That you're able to like buy into this enough to where you see that giant shot and like all the the rainbow like imagery and stuff like that, and you're like, yeah, that that 100. There is no fakery to that. <laughs> Those puppets are actually there, and it all feels so real. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, but yeah, I guess Adam, any other final thoughts, stray things you want to mention about? The Muppet movie, before we continue. Uh, just this is one of those, you know, five star, ten star, 
A plus movies that I mean I can't really think of one person that would watch this and be like eh, it was all right I mean it's just it's a perfect movie it's beautiful it's sweet it's funnier than hell and it's generally just super engaging I, I just absolutely love this movie yeah I I totally agree that like it's perfect movie so stellar it feels like the sort of first big massive like cinematic achievement for Henson and his company. And it's, it's like I said, it like does so much like get you invested in these characters. And if you know any other stuff, like uh, if you're a fucking dork like I am about like Jim Henson and his legacy, you can see so much of like these autobiographical elements that are in there. But at the same time, if you're still a kid, it still works even on that level. We're just like, this is a fun movie about a bunch of cute animals that are made of felt. They're like going around saying funny things and want to achieve their dream. That's a, it's a beautiful little like thing that works for it's a real sort of a like all ages movie, a true family film that the entire family can enjoy. And, you know, parents won't get sick of it or kids won't be bored by the adult jokes. Just all works beautifully together. And even though as someone who like loves all sorts of Muppet stuff, if you follow my letterbox, I like log so much like random Jim Henson Muppet related shit. Um, this is still the pinnacle without a doubt. And uh, it might never get to that point again, but at the same time, I'm glad at least we have this. That everybody can still watch it so many years down the line. But now, let's get into our alleged bad feature, Labyrinth. TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets and Dark Crystal. Oh! Where you go with a head like that? Ooh. George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. <laughs> Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible and nothing is what it seems. The world of Labyrinth. Uh, so Labyrinth came out June 27th, 1986, and this one was directed by Jim Henson, and it was the last feature film Henson would direct, uh, as he would die in 1990, and uh, this movie was not very successful at the time that it came out, um, and wasn't critically loved that much. I think that, that was a problem with, like, Henson had with this movie and The Dark Crystal before it. It was, like, these kind of, like, bit more, like, ambitious fantasy films that weren't as embraced by audiences as his Muppet work. And, uh, you know, he would go on to direct, like, a couple specials and other stuff for the Muppets before he eventually passed away. Uh, but this is a movie that, despite not doing well at the time, uh, has gained a huge cult following. But, uh, Adam... You did as a bad pick, so I'm going to allow you to take the floor and make your case as to why you're not necessarily a fan of Labyrinth. All right. <clears throat> Popping my peas. Popping my peas. Small amount of <laughs> Drink your mint julep. Just like, oh, your honor. If <laughs> yeah. I may. If I may declare. <laughs> you know, the thing is, uh, all right. <clears throat> This is just, again, my opinion, and if people don't like it, it's fine. It's my opinion. It doesn't matter. You don't have to like it. All right. So, you know, Jennifer Connelly, I, I'll give her a break. She's, you know, a young girl in her early teens 
and this and all that. But I mean, she she's just so wooden for me, and I'm not particularly fond of the character either. I think she's just a, kind of a brat ass. I don't really care for the music. I know that's travesty. It's David Bowie, but I don't like the music in this. Um, David Bowie's fun. I'll give it that. Uh, I do like a lot of the puppet design and things like that, but it, it, over and all, it, the movie is just fucking boring, man. And like I said, if I if I can't get behind a lead character that you're supposed to follow, I mean, even lead characters who are brats or snotty or whatever, you know, they, they those exist in movies, and some of those are movies I like. But coupled with the bad acting, coupled with just the overall cheesiness of it all, I, I just, I, it just doesn't work for me. These type of movies never, rarely ever work for me. These like young '80s, young kid fantasy movies. Like I'm not even crazy about like the Never Ending Story or you know Dark Crystal or this or most of those. They just, they just, it's not a genre that I've ever really been hugely a fan of, and I. Couldn't really explain to you why. It's just not for me. Um, I get why people like it so much. I completely understand. I mean, Div Bowie is captivating. The puppets are great. I mean, the Ludo character alone is fucking amazing. Um, and they, they, it's, it's, yeah, eh, no. Nope. I mean, I can sympathize in that, like you mentioned the Dark Crystal, which I would not categorize as like, young fantasy necessarily as much because that's just like a whole different other it's almost like an experimental film basically <laughs> the dark crystal is and i think i feel that way a bit more about like the dark crystal with in terms of like the story lags a lot more because it feels like we're so focused on the craft we forget about sort of like the characters in the story but i think i like labyrinth a bit more because especially i think upon this watch i gained a bit more of an appreciation of just the fact that, like, at the same time that it is, like, a young kid fantasy movie of the 80s, this one is dealing with a lot more sort of, like, themes about, like, her being, like, at that cusp between childhood and full-on, like, adulthood. And I think it's, like, wrestling a bit more, especially for Henson, it's focusing a lot more on, like, sort of, at the same time they're, like, these little puppets or whatever. There's a whole, like, sexual awakening element of it that also has a completely different factor. I didn't realize until this watch where there was a point where um, they go through, like, before she actually goes into the labyrinth, and there's a shot of, like, her room, Sarah's room, and you see all the different, like, oh, there's, like, a, an approximation of, like, the various different characters we're going to see later. And there's one thing that's, like, a clipboard, where you see, like, a bunch of newspaper clippings that are out, cut out of um, Sarah's mother, who is, I guess, in, like, in what is revealed in those newspaper clippings, and you kind of see, like, bits and pieces of it there, is that she is an actress who ran off with another actor instead of her father, and that's why they're divorced and she's not in the picture. And the person in the photo who's with her is an actor who in the picture is played by David Bowie. So that adds a whole nother context to this of like, oh, not only is she like having this weird sexual awakening thing to not just like a random Goblin King character, but this approximation of like basically what she would desire from her adulthood in terms of like the person that her mother ran off from like this uh, like suburban life that she hates with and so there's this weird kind of like fascination that's going on there that um i think adds another layer i don't think it like makes this movie great necessarily but that's something i didn't even realize before about like oh this is like has a lot more interesting thematic depth than i think something like the dark crystal or any a lot of those like 80s fantasy kids movies would have where it's like this is really a movie about a young girl realizing like trapped between like her stuffed animals and this hot David Bowie dude who has his bulge out very prominently throughout the movie. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a little bit more depth to it, 
then you know dark crystal or even never any story and stuff like that and it also doesn't hurt that of course she's having a sexual awakening with that fucking hog in between his legs in this movie yep um, that's very prominent <laughs> yeah it's it's huge, which, by the way, uh, it's potpourri. Me and Heather. Heather reminded me today, but we saw some interview or read an article with David Bowie where the bulge, he's like, I wish I could you know, claim it as mine. He's like, but I actually right. stuffed potpourri down there because I was worried that you know, after all the dancing and stuff that the puppeteers would get a whiff of something. Um, right. <laughs> but still, yeah. Um, I find myself not giving a shit within like 20 minutes. I still like the like I said I like looking at the characters and stuff like that. But I mean, even rewatching it for this show, it was a fucking chore, man. Now I would have put this one as like one of the worst movies I've ever seen, or one of the worst movies, you know, that we've even done for the show. Like, no way. It's just this is just one of those movies that just never connected for me. And you know, as I got gotten older and stuff like that, I I, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. I've tried a couple times. You know, there are a lot of people who like this. Like my wife's not crazy about it but she's a fan and actually her first like sort of oh my god moment was when she saw this movie i mean i I heard that from a lot of people and that was something that was weird where like i didn't realize obviously when i was a little kid and it's like what are you talking about is that the case and i look back at it when i was like in my teens like oh no yeah that's very clearly there i was distracted by those fucking puppets but nope that's he that that bolts deserves a co-star credit basically in this movie (laughs) that's ridiculous it's like he's wearing four athletic cups (laughs) Um, it's fucking crazy and i know a lot of people talk about the songs in this movie and all that i just feel like they're just oversynthesized dribble like none of them work for me i'd rather take fucking lamal's never ending story over any of these songs it's just it i don't know i don't know and i like david bowie david bowie fan i like david bowie's music but holy shit, do I hate the soundtrack to this movie. The two songs I really like from this are probably Magic Dance. I think just more because of like what's going on there. Obviously, it's really catchy. Um, and then I like Underground, the opening song. Uh, but it's not my favorite Bowie thing overall. I mean, to be fair, there's only one song I loathe. And one scene I just completely like, why does this even fucking hear? is the whole Chili Down thing with those characters. The, like, the Fireys. Awful. Awful characters. Yeah, it's a really bad sequence that adds nothing <laughs> to this movie at all. It's like, obviously, this is a full of like a bunch of like vignettes or Alice in Wonderlandy. But even then, I'm just like, guys, get this the fuck out of here. <laughs> this, this is like so stupid. And it looks terrible. Because it's like, it's that's even like, it's pre blue screen because it's like they're shot on like black velvet or whatever. Yeah, right. And I think exactly. that sometimes works uh, in other cases with like Rarely, kinds of productions, though. but here Rarely. it looks terrible. Oh, it looks terrible. It looks so yeah. fucking bad. And they're annoying. The character design is okay. It's not even that great. It's just, yeah, that that's one of the main scenes of this movie for me, too, where I'm like, Oh, fuck this movie. <laughs> I will say, my favorite side character in this movie, other than Ludo, because like I said, I think Ludo's just an amazing creature. I mean, it's huge, and it just it works so well. And I think it was like originally like 100 or 200 pounds or some shit like that, Yeah, which is crazy. But I love the worm. I do think the worm's cool as fuck. Every time I see it, I'm like, why is he, why is he got a little scarf on? He's getting a little chilly. I love my favorite thing is that he's just like, why don't you come inside for tea? And it's like, he's she's like a full grown person. Hello. Did you say hello? I said hello, but close enough. You're like, yeah. Little cockney worm with a little scarf on. He's getting chilly. He's got business. It's one of many bits there where you can see sort of a credit screenwriter Terry Jones' work coming through, like very Python esque. And yes. Like some of those, like. Bits and pieces, which I know you're also not a huge fan of, like sort of like British 
dry sense of humor in general as well. Yeah, I've become more of a fan as is time goes on, especially because my wife likes it quite a bit. So I'm becoming more of a fan of it. I'm still not crazy about it. No, I've never been a huge Python fan. I, I, I've always been a big Eric Idle fan. I love Eric Idle. I think he's absolutely hilarious. But but in terms of like the sort of the, the, the sillier British sensibilities here with like the various different characters we interact with, you're not necessarily big on like the, I'm, I always tell the truth and I always lie, like those kind of guys. No, that, see, to me, well, it works in this sort of context because like i said i think the puppets are cool and i think it works in this context because everything is weird because she's in this weird like dream realm goblin whatever the fuck and so it kind of works that they're all a little off but uh, did i laugh at any of it no god no uh, except for the little worm guy because i mean what is that little scarf for <laughs> this is the biggest thing Adam's thinking of throughout the rest of the movie. She's like, how did he get that scarf? Why he's got it? Why? Chili? Oh, he got chili. He's got to bring a little scarf with him. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Who did it a scarf that small? Ridiculous. Right, right, right. Of course. Um, but yeah, I, I want to go back to like we. You kind of uh, you mentioned uh, your dislike of Connolly in this. I think what works for me for Connolly in this movie. Is that like she is, yeah, playing this character who is very much like a 15 year old girl. She feels just like, oh, she's very like assholeish toward her parents and doesn't really treat the responsibilities, babysitting this kid seriously. But what I like is that with her character, despite the fact that she has, I get a sense of her like actually maturing over the course of the movie. And I think that's what really works is in so many other cases where like they try and do that, it's very dicey depending on, like, the, the way the story goes and the performance for, like, these kind of fantasy movies of, like, oh, this is, like, a coming-of-age movie about this kid growing up. Um, it still doesn't matter because I don't necessarily like the kid. Obviously, that's the case for you. But I like the fact that I believe necessarily her realizing, like, that whole element of, oh, this isn't fair. Like, that's her whole complaint throughout, like, the first, like, third of the movie. And then her just accepting that at a certain point, but that's the way it is, and I have to keep going along this journey. It feels like it's her actually, through this very silly magical adventure, learning just about, like, this is what life is like. That, like, you have to go through these weird adventures, and sometimes you meet friends, sometimes you meet enemies, sometimes you meet people who you think might be alluring to you, but turn out to be manipulating you this whole time. And I like that journey that she goes on. I don't think Connolly is necessarily terrible. I wouldn't say she's, like, the best kid actor, but I believe her as, like, a teenage girl who's going through that kind of arc, which... I, you know, we we have this debate all the time about, like, likability with characters necessarily. I can give her slack for that sort of, like, lack of likability where it's just like, I don't know, I was kind of an asshole at that age, too. <laughs> no one understood me as I went off LARPing with my dog in a park, which is, like, the saddest thing. That immediately endears me to her, because, like, oh, you're out there LARPing with your dog in a park? That is so sad, and the rain comes in. <laughs> Immediately, I'm just like, oh, this this girl has like no friends whatsoever. I just feel so much empathy for her as she finds uh, friends in the form of weird imaginary characters. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty sad, like for sure. Uh, so they're just coming up weird, of, like a fucking Renaissance fair dress, talking yeah. about goblins and mazes with her stupid dog. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's pretty fucked. Um, yeah, I mean, nah. It doesn't work shit for me at all. Like I, yeah, obviously she is a fucking teenager in real life and blah, blah, blah. But so I believe that she's a teenager. I do believe that. Um, but you don't believe that arc necessarily to her growing and maturing. No, no, I don't. I I mean, I think that's intended. I, I think that's the intention of the filmmakers and what they're trying to do. To me, there's just not enough 
strengthen the performance that carried across. I feel like she's very bratty and immature, which obviously, again, 15-year-old kids, yeah, they're going to rebel and everything. But to me, it doesn't really change. Like, she's just kind of bratty and whiny the whole movie. I would argue by the time she gets to the end of this, where it's just like, she's not whining about like, you have no power over me. She's like, I, you have no power over me. Yeah, well, Nancy did that in 1984 as a Nightmare on Elm Street, and it worked better. Yeah, it's almost as if it can work again in another movie. Nope. Only one movie. <laughs> only one movie. I only get one pass for that. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, like, it, it, it's helped, obviously, I think, by, like, her scenes with Bowie, where Bowie is just, like, this weird, like, obviously, this kind of fits, like, his whole... <laughs> like pop star persona of just being I'm a weird magical enigmatic character who's coming in and trying to get you to like basically become my queen essentially like he has the initial facade of like oh I'm gonna kidnap your baby brother and then you're gonna like try and get him but throughout the entire thing he keeps coming back just like maybe you should just stop doing this question just embrace your fate which is me that's what you need to do just embrace who I am and I can see that allure coming off of Connolly throughout the whole movie at the same time where it's just like oh man this weird guy has kidnapped my brother I have to get my brother but also he looks like kind of like my dream man and this is weird and I'm feeling a lot of weird feelings <laughs> I think I feel that like off the chemistry between the two of them as well and you said you liked Bowie a bit more in this right yeah man Bowie's fucking really good in this I mean he's fucking captivating like I don't know if it's the bulge in the crotch or the paint on his eyes but you just want to watch this fucking guy and he's got that sweet ass Motley Crue hair yeah, I think especially, like, when he's interacting, like, whether, like, the contrast between him interacting with Connolly and then when he's interacting with the puppets, like, in the dance magic dance number. And, like, the start of it is he's, like, so annoyed by what's going on. <laughs> or just like, oh, you guys are, like, doing whatever, fine. Like, how about we all shut up and we sing my song? That's how we're going to do. Like, I love, that kind of shows off also that aspect of, like, what... Connolly is sort of allegedly tempted by is this guy who like feels like he's mature and mysterious and fascinating but in his free time he's hanging out with a bunch of fucking goblins who is just like oh I hate all of you now let's dance like that's his idea of maturity <laughs> is doing that like being a lord a king of goblins is like you're all gonna dance with me now it's like oh you're just a big kid at the same time and I think that also kind of helps with that arc because it's her kind of realizing like oh no this whole like fantasy facade thing is still infantilizing me at the same time we would both be like grown uh, adult children together and there wouldn't be actually any kind of growth or progression you'd still try and keep me here with stuff like the uh, that whole sequence with the, like the weird bag lady who's just like oh yes here's your toys here's this here's your yeah I was gonna bring that up actually uh, Heather Heather was telling me my wife uh, that that part freaked her out as a kid uh yeah. and watching it you know that is still probably one of the most effective scenes of the movie this creepy little bag lady who's you know basically a hoarder turning her into a hoarder <laughs> like it it yeah it's it's crazy and it's creepy and then the puppet for that is really fucking creepy and weird looking so i would say that's probably the most effective part but i uh <laughs> i'm so bored yeah, I don't know. I don't find any of that, like, boring, because I think it has, like, that thematic resonance at the same time, where, like, I think that's a big thing is, like, obviously with Henson directing this one, this feels the closest to, like, a lot of his experimental shorts he would do in, like, the 60s, like, Timepiece and other stuff like that, where there's a lot of the weird surreal imagery, like the whole M.C. Escher sequence uh, of them, like, walking around and, like, Bowie, like, literally going over, like, that one edge onto, like, where she is on the platform and stuff like that. It feels the most kind of, like, weird and bizarre and experimental. Even, like, the whole, like, as the world turns round sequence where, like, she's basically, like, 
drugged with this peach and then goes into like a weird eyes wide shut party that Bowie is at. <laughs> he's at. He's at an eyes wide shut party with all those goblins. I mean, that's what it is. It looks a lot like that. They have like fucking <laughs> masks and shit. Like, I was just waiting for her to say Fidelio. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna bag the bag lady. <laughs> Todd Fields playing piano in the synthesizer in the band. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> Um, but I mean, but that's the thing. I think that adds another element where it's just like, oh, this is what an adult party looks like for Sarah. Just like, look, this is like, oh, we're all like having fun with masks and stuff, but we're all adults here and we're all, there's this weird sexual vibe. But immediately she starts saying, like, this feels weird. This feels off. I'm getting the fuck out of here. She asserts herself by throwing that fucking chair into the very clear, like, <laughs> matted crystal ball thing <laughs> that's there. I think that's, that's the stuff where I think it d- doesn't bore me necessarily because it's Henson also just doing weird experimental shit with, like, what is like a fantasy movie from this era like this feels far more experimental than like the the never ending story and a lot of those other ones you mentioned that weren't from henson yeah i guess okay scintillating conversation that's what people listen to the podcast for <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> well yeah no, well, hold on here let me, let me get out my dissertation no i mean the fuck? it's it doesn't escape me why people like it, or why the, some of the things you're saying that you can sort of appreciate of it and all that. I totally understand. I absolutely get it, and I can see where you're coming from. And it's not even just because of Jennifer Connelly, I mean, or the, the music, or and it, there's no one reason why I don't like this movie. It's several fucking reasons. It's just, it, it's something that has never really engaged me on any sort of level, and I don't know if it's, if it's because I was never a 15-year-old girl. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, some a lot of the problems are universal as far as like rebelling against your parents and feeling lost and all that. And I was never that too. And I feel you know I like this movie, so it's not necessarily a requirement for it. Well, no, I, I don't think it is. But I'm saying maybe that's part of the reason. I don't know. I, I, I you know, seeing this as a little boy, it's hard to identify as a little girl. You know, if you're not that way. Also, saw so this a little boy, and I <laughs> didn't feel that either. <laughs> Look, man. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh, oof, burned. Oh, gotcha. Oh, arrow no. through the chest, busted. Oh, no, it's just, but like I said, I, I'm just, I guess I'm just trying to come up with a reason why maybe it never connected for me. I really don't know because there's a lot in this movie that should work. But again, the genre as a whole, it's just it never worked for me. I mean, it's not that I'm not into fantasy movies. Maybe I'm not into fantasy movies as much as I thought I was. Like, there's some that I really like, but for the most part, it's not a genre I go to. So maybe it's just, I'm not a fan of fantasy, I guess. Well, and, and I mean, and you were known at the time because there were a lot of people who weren't a fan of this movie. Yeah, this is definitely one of those that sort of caught on later, for sure. Right, yeah, it was not you know critically praised at the time and didn't have a huge box office take. And I think that a lot of people even said that like that kind of was like the sort of the beginning of the end for Henson, just sort of like his career and everything. Where the the, the lack of success for this kind of like winded him. Like Brian Henson kind of said as much. Like, and I guess I, I can kind of get that because there's there's certain elements too where like someone we haven't mentioned who was a producer on this movie is George Lucas. I can see some of the early rumblings of say like the prequel trilogy in here with certain characters and i think even like the whole like the part where the movie really loses me besides like the fiery guys or whatever once they get into like that goblin city at the end 
And it's, like, not necessarily with, like, the big door guy who I love. I think that's, like, a great example where it's just, like, the doors close in. That's this metallic robot guy comes out. But after that, we're just, like, goblin antics in the city. Like, it just feels like, okay, we're just kind of going through gags. There's no danger here, necessarily. <laughs> this feels like it's just, like, a weird Muppet thing <laughs> that's going on um, with these less, you know, Muppety characters. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I still think there's, like, some of these thematic elements that are interesting. Or even you mentioned, like, the, the look of these characters. We should mention Brian Froud, who uh, designed the, a lot of the puppet stuff for this and the Dark Crystal. And his son, Toby, uh, is little Toby in the movie. Um, and we'll later go on to, like get into his father's footsteps and do some like puppetry you know design and stuff like that the puppets all are really amazing like even you mentioned ludo who's like this big giant thing even hoggle who i would see is my least favorite of these guys i feel way more annoyed by hoggle <laughs> and his dumb journey that i don't really have that much investment in it's just like you keep turning coat all the time dude go fuck yourself agreed with hoggle yeah absolutely and you know what that's another thing too honestly really and i don't mean to cut you off the voice acting in this is not that great for the puppets. Like, it's not that good. Hoggle, I don't like Hoggle's voice actor. The doorknobs. I do like the fox with the eye patch. Um, whatever the fuck his name is, I forget. Um, oh, Sardinimus. Yeah. Sardinimus. But most of the voice acting is just not very good to me. It feels almost like they're improving and they don't know what to say. Well, I think this is something that happened a lot with, like, you know, as the Muppets would go along and, like, you have, like, a Frank Oz who does a bit of puppeteering here, but later on, he wouldn't be there for puppeteering, so he'd dub over the voice later after the pup the puppeteers already performed it. You do get a lot of that, I think, in this, where you have these voice actors, most of which did not do the puppeteering. And I think there is a bit of that disconnect. I think Hoglin in particular, just because while he's a technical marvel, there's also just the weird thing of, like, it's this, like, little person in a weird like suit mask thing that's like this weird animatronic that like it looks great but at the same time brian henson's voice for that i agree isn't stellar i think ludo's the only one once again where it works because there's not a lot of voice acting there right yeah he basically only says like three or four words he says his name he says sarah and he yells pretty much but yeah that that's probably another thing like i said that's probably another thing that really sort of took the movie down a notch for me too is it does sound like now that you mentioned it, I never even thought of that, but it does sound like all overdubbed. Right. And then it even doesn't just quite work with like the way the performer is doing it. Like I would love to hear the scratch track basically with these actual puppeteers doing yeah. voices. Right. Yeah. I, I I can agree with that necessarily. Um but but still I, I would I want to ask before like we start getting to final thoughts and stuff. Well I mean you mentioned earlier like the worm is your favorite. Of, yeah. like the sort of side characters and stuff. Is there any other one you would want to shout out of like these other different puppet creatures? Well, like I said, I think Ludo is just an achievement. He, he's fucking great looking. Um, uh, I like a lot of the goblins, especially the scene where she's first in her room and like, talk, oh, I wish. And they're like, yes, yes. And there's that big dumb one with the horns. Right. And the one who's just like, I wish that the goblins would come and take her away. What, what's so complicated about this? Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of cool character designs. And you know what? I... You're dead ass on about the George Lucas influence here, um, and those creatures, the the root, the thing we don't like with those fucking creatures. Yeah, the fiery guys. Yeah, they're all salacious crumb. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, I, it just oh. And there feels like maybe Lucas was on set just there, like you know, I could maybe make this work with like a guy with like rabbit ears and stuff. I think that could work, although maybe a Binks of some sort. <laughs> Waving his hand at a random grip. You will bring me a Diet Coke. 
<laughs> yes, Mr. Lucas, I'm your assistant. That's what I yeah, do. Yeah, sure, man. You will do it. You'll get me a Diet Coke. <laughs> but, um... Um, I mean, I, I would say in terms of, like the other side people, I love the look of uh, the wise man, who is the guy that has like the little bird on his head. Yeah, that guy's great. I forgot about that guy. He's awesome. Right. Uh, who's puppeteered by Frank Oz, like that, and also the bird hat. He's just like, it's so interesting being your hat <laughs> this whole time. Uh, like, but but yeah, I mean, there's them. I like the the um, the knockers as well. I think they're like funny characters, and I like the the puppeteering that's going on with them. Yeah, I would say like there isn't necessarily a bad design in the bunch. Though I would agree that I don't think all the characters necessarily are that consistent compared to or as endearing as any other like Henson production necessarily. Um, but we've been talking a lot about Labyrinth. So, Adam, any quick final thoughts here about Labyrinth that aren't just like, I didn't like it. I get it. I understand why people like it. And I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the David Bowie of it all and things like that and the high fantasy. And I know this is one that really, like, young girls really go to. And obviously, boys too, with Thomas. Um, I understand sort of the wonderment of youth and all that, that why people would be connected to this. I Maybe I just was a bitter eight-year-old, you know, smoking my palm malls. Like, oh, this is... <laughs> Put a bridge on River Kwai. Turn this shit off. <laughs> I don't want any of this madness. I want that madness. Give me some Kubrick. What is this? Um, <laughs> this isn't a word of Herzog picture. Um, no, I just... It just never connected for me, and, and I, in a way, I feel like I'm sort of missing out sometimes because I know how much people like this and how much people talk about it. But then, you know, when I really sit back and think about it, when people talk about this movie, they talk about basically David Bowie's bulge. There's not a lot more discussion when it comes to this movie among, you know, the general populace. It's David Bowie. It's the the dance, the magic dance scene. It's the you know, tell me about the babe and all that stuff. But there's really I'm sorry, not I'm sorry. Much... What what babe exactly? Oh God! You mean the babe with the power, right? Oh God! The power of hoodoo voodoo, right? You remind me of that babe, right? No, I was talking about the little pig. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, it, idiot. that'll do. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> hey, you you run a movie podcast, moron? <laughs> um, Fraud but... stamp. <laughs> but no, I get why. You know, uh, cinema's dead to me. Put out my palm all on my leg. <laughs> I think David Bowie's what keeps this movie around. And I, I mean, I get it. He's great in it. He's David Bowie. Barnett, to me, this doesn't really offer anything. So, you know, again, I guess my final statement is, if you guys like this movie, good for you. I don't. Well, yeah, um, I like this movie. I, I've been mostly defending it just because, like, Adam is over here as my point-counterpoint. Uh, but I still have, like, enough issues with it where, where it's not, like, my favorite Henson thing. I think, honestly, as a director, Henson was sort of, like, at his weakest, necessarily. I think he works so much better as, like, like a writer, producer, performer kind of element of it. Because when he kind of was in the director's chair, I think in the case of, like, The Dark Crystal or even The Great Muppet Keeper, both movies I like they still feel kind of like we're focusing a bit too much on like the technical craft. And this movie, I think kind of suffers for that as well a bit, but at the same time, I think there's enough thematic resonance stuff that like makes it especially when I was a kid, I just liked like, Oh, this is like fun puppets and whatever. And it's fantasy. And there's this weird man here who apparently has a bulge that I'm not going to notice for like another <laughs> decade or so. But now it feels just like a lot more interesting as like, I've grown older. It's like, Oh, okay. The story about being on that cusp of like growing up, 
and realizing that like, well, I could go for like this version of what being a grown up is, but that's not really that grown up at the same time. And kind of coming to terms with a, a lesson that I think Henson like tried to portray in a lot of his work of just like, well, you do have to put away childish things to a certain degree, but you don't have to like put them away forever. They can still exist somehow in your mind and they can still like sort of uh, proliferate when you want them to. And they can, there, there still is like a charm to having that element in, in your life while at the same time progressing forward as a person. And I think for all that, you know, I think that's what makes this uh, a dear a bit more than just David Bowie's bulge, though that's a key component. I don't think anyone's arguing that. No, you can't argue it. And it's one of those things, once you've seen it, you will never unsee it. You cannot watch this movie and not check it out. You can't. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) You really can't. Especially when there's so many sequences of just, like, puppets at that, like, height level. At crotch level. Near 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the thing where Hog was, like, begging to him, just like, no, please, master. Just like, you're you're literally right in front of you. (laughs) Yep. Full on dick. Right there. (laughs) Well, not full-on dick. That'd be a completely different movie. But still, no. yeah, it's right there. There's a version of that that's probably out there on the internet for you to peruse. When that's yeah, it's like, the ba- like the Babyrinth or some bullshit. <laughs> the Labyrinth? Yes! That's it. That's absolutely it. <laughs> All right, on that note, let's get into our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. So the Double Redo is a segment that Adam and I do every week in which we talk about a good and a bad feature that uh, we that is related to the topic in question. So we say, like, hey, here's something we'd recommend related to the topic, and here's something we would uh, recommend you steer clear of um, instead of watching. And so for Henson, uh, I'm going first here, and I am starting off with... This is breaking a bit of protocol for me. This isn't the first time someone's recommended something that isn't technically a movie on the show, because Adam has recommended previously, uh, it was for Regina King, you recommended Watchmen. So uh, I'm going to break a bit of that protocol here and recommend a TV show, but it kind of fits in the same parameters because it is a one-season TV show. It wasn't a miniseries, unfortunately. This was planned to be a larger, bigger series that just never progressed forward. I am recommending the Netflix series The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, which I kind of mentioned earlier, The Dark Crystal, which Henson did... Um, like after Muppet Caper, but before Labyrinth, is not my favorite of his works. I love and respect a lot of like the craft that's going on there and creating a whole world and doing it without humans, just puppets and everything. I think there's a lot of technical craft stuff that's fascinating, but it's kind of dull. That's the one I would describe as far more dull of a movie necessarily. But what I love about The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, which came out in 2019 on Netflix and is sort of a prequel that takes place uh, several decades before the original Dark Crystal movie came out, um, is uh, it takes a lot of the elements of the world, because this is all also all puppets, no humans involved, um, all directed by Louis Leterrier, and has a massive cast as well in here uh, that includes, like, Taron Edgerton, Anya Taylor-Joy, Natalie Emmanuel, um, and then, like, Simon Pegg, and uh, Jason Isaacs, when you get into the Skeksis uh, voice actors. Um, basically, what, what this does, I think, is it takes a lot of the elements of that original movie and it expands them in not just like a sort of story form, but also really gets you to embrace like the, the characters and the actual 
plot beats that are going on here. This is basically about, like, how in the Dark Crystal universe, the Skeksis, who are these, like, big bird creatures, have been ruling over uh, this, you know, fantasy world for a while. And this is the point where basically one of the Gelfling, who are, like, the smaller creatures, discovers that the Skeksis have, like, sinister intent. And he starts to question them as leaders. And it becomes a story about, as it mentions, like an age of resistance uprising. And I think it's a really fascinating sort of like fantasy war drama that's building up with these like puppet characters. And I think the characters are much more engrossing. The uh, performances are a lot better. I think this is a better example of sort of like puppeteering and like overdubbing with celebrity voice cast. It works pretty well. Like I would say my favorite in particular, uh, Simon Pegg plays the Chamberlain, who if you've seen the original movie is a Skeksis who goes like, mm, and has like the weird like red coat on and stuff like that. <laughs> and he embraces like sort of that slimy sort of like manipulating element like amongst the Skeksis and the Gelfling so well. And it's, like, looks gorgeous. It has, like, so many great sort of world-building elements. It's a bummer that, like, obviously it got canceled because it was too fucking expensive for, like, this, like, very niche sort of subject matter. Um, but at the same time, there is, like, so much fascination and craft that's going on. While at the same time, I got invested in, like, all these Gelfling characters and the sort of interplay between the Skeksis and a lot of this other stuff. I think it's, like, a fascinating show that... Like, the first season, while it does obviously, like, leave open stuff to a season two that'll never happen, um, at the same time, like, it has enough of a story to where, by the end, I mostly at least felt like it was a satisfying, like, end to the season, and that, like, at least a lot of the bigger arcs are wrapped up, while it's a shame that, like, it can't progress forward, but I think it takes what that sort of original movie did and improves upon it in a way that I think Henson would have enjoyed if he had lived to see it, necessarily. I think it's one of the better sort of post- Henson's death productions that that production company has done in quite a while. And I would also recommend the uh, Calling of the Crystal, or the Crystal is Calling, I, I forget which one, but it's the Making of documentary that's on Netflix. It's like right after you watch this, the series, watch that documentary. It is fascinating to see just how much like this massive, the, mo like, the most expensive like puppet production, I think, uh, in recent memory. It's just like how much work went into it and like designing every single element, the sets and the characters and everything. It's it's a fascinating production and I would recommend it, especially if you like Elements of the Dark Crystal but wish to kind of improved some of the story and uh, character elements. This series I think is great for you. And then briefly, my bad is a movie and some may say like, oh, this feels like you're kind of punching down Thomas to like <laughs> hate on a movie that's aimed at six-year-olds, basically. But uh, I, my bad feature is The Adventures of Elmo in Grouchland, which is the second of the uh, Sesame Street movies. And uh, I would say that uh, for that one, while it is obviously aimed at like a much younger audience, at the same time, like in comparison to the other movie, which put a pin in, because I think someone else here will be talking about <laughs> the other Sesame Street movie in a moment, um, this one I feel talks down to kids a lot more, and it feels like it's also this this weird thing where it's like, it's literally, it's Elmo going into like Oscar the Grouch's trash can and going into Grouchland, which is full of like grouchy characters, obviously, and there's like Mandy Patinkin plays like a human villain, and that one, it feels so much more like they are talking down to their audience, because there's a lot more of just sort of like, oh, kids aren't entertained by this, so we're going to have the characters like interact with them or even like at a certain point there is a lot more like 90s cynical jokes in here like big bird tries to sing the abcs and all the grouch is like oh that's so get us out of here this is so terrible and it's like i don't know it feels like 
a weirdly cynical Sesame Street movie, which is a bummer because Sesame Street at its core is like a fun, like earnest thing about just like all these all these various Muppet-y kind of creatures teaching kids and also having their fun little adventures. And I think you can do that in, as we'll talk about, I think in a bit, uh, in cinematic form. But I don't think Elmo and Grouchland does a very good job of that. And I think um, just because a movie is aimed at little kids doesn't mean that like you can't respect that audience. And I feel like it's kind of talking down to them a lot more than it is actually meeting them on their level. All right. So I've only seen like the first two or three episodes of the Dark Crystal show. But I will say, without liking the movie, I was pretty engaged by the show. I, I forget why I didn't finish it. Probably just like personal stuff going on or whatever. But I mean, I had a similar thing where like I only watched the first couple of episodes when it originally came out. And I just actually went through it like in the last yeah. week. So that's something I might want to go back to. Um but I do remember really like, and I remember thinking it looked fucking amazing. And uh, I did like a lot of the acting and voice actors a lot. So that's something I might want to go back to for sure. And then Elmo Grouchland, I have of course seen uh, <laughs> being a father who, to a daughter who was obsessed with Elmo, uh, who had her Elmo doll from the time she was about a year old to just within the past six months, put it away. Like slept with it every night. It went every went everywhere with her, all that shit. So of course we watch it. And yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's treating its audience, which is obviously children, but treating them like they're dumb. And uh, that's not something that you're used to getting out of a Sesame Street uh, show or movie. But uh, yeah, it feels like they're just sort of like, ooh, bright colors, loud noises. Blah. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't at all. Um, in fact, even to the point where my kid being an Elmo fan really like didn't latch onto it as much as I would have expected. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not very good at all. Uh, but to sort of go with mine, um, and talk about a good Sesame street movie, if not a, a great Sesame street movie, I have follow that bird. Um, follow that bird is just, Another one of those that I grew up with, I loved it. I cried at it as a little kid every time I saw it, especially there's two scenes. One, Snuffy Boy Bird, <laughs> and then with Big Bird's blue and in the circus, and he's singing. I it's bald, bald. And it's one of those things where even if I watch it now, if I don't cry, I'm going to get misty-eyed. It's going to happen. Uh, I think Follow That Bird really takes the Sesame Street sort of formula and really perfectly translates it to film. It, it's smart, it's funny, it's cute, it's so sweet, and it treats its audience with respect, the kids and stuff, and it does try to teach little lessons here and there, and it really works. And it's, again, really well puppeteered, it looks good, it's funny, the songs are cute. I, I think Follow That Bird is not necessarily an underrated, but kind of a criminally underseen and under talked about movie. Like nobody talks about follow that bird. And it's kind of wild to me because I think it's pretty damn great. And then uh, for my bad real briefly, it was the alternate choice uh, the happy time murders. I, it's just a fucking shit show of a film. The whole gimmick is, is that it's, you know, puppets, you know, doing crazy cum shots and swearing and all this, you know, sex and all this stuff. And it, they're not even good looking puppets. They're it's bland designs. Uh, the voice acting is not very good. 
It's just, it's really fucking stupid and bland. When your whole gimmick is puppets being filthy and dirty and stuff, which could work. I mean, Crank Yankers worked. I'm not a Crank Yankers fan, but it worked. People liked it. <laughs> Meet the Feebles, stuff like that. Meet the Feebles, exactly. It, it's been done and has worked. So, But if that's what you're going to sort of base your whole film around, then at least come up with good designs. At least. They all look like bland ass puppets you would design in like ventriloquist class or puppeteering class. It's a lot of what uh, the Henson Company calls whatnot puppets, who are like background puppets. You would, yeah, say. a thousand percent, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all, and 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 any level. I mean, Melissa McCarthy's trying. I'll give her that. She's trying, but just barely. There's, I, I don't think I laughed once at this movie. Um, if I did, I wouldn't even call it a laugh. Maybe a chuckle. Uh, but yeah, it's it's terrible i remember even when the previews came out i was like this looks like it's gonna be really bad and uh hey i was right it's pretty fucking bad yeah uh, i have seen both of yours i recently rewatched follow that bird for the first time since i was probably like i don't know three or four or whatever when i first saw as a little kid in the prep before we uh were gonna do this episode and I agree with you. Like, obviously, the the Bluebird uh, song has been kind of like what is pointed to a lot. It's kind of like the sad moment of that movie. But even before that, like with the Snuffleupagus thing or even the scene where like Big Bird is actually like leaving to go with a family, like that feels like it touches like on a primal thing that you felt as a kid whenever like if you moved away from your home or like a friend of yours moved away. And that weird first time you get that sad emotion just like i'm not going to see this person again potentially and especially when it's big bird the most innocent cute adorable giant bird puppet you've ever seen you feel all that emotion swelling up when you at it uh but at the same time there's still a lot of other funny stuff like uh dave thomas and joe flattery as the <laughs> the villains um who run the evil carnival are so funny like dim-witted like perfect kind of like sesame street villains where they're kind of nasty but at the same time they're very funny <laughs> while this is going on and a lot of great cameos from people like Chevy Chase, John Candy, a lot of fun, like, people popping up in there as well. And also, it looks very good. Like, the when you actually see Sesame Street in cinematic form, it looks like, oh, wow, this feels like a real street as much as it can be compared to, like, the sets you would see on the show. It feels like, oh, this is, like, they actually expanded to make it look like a, a little town, which, like, works really well for it. Um, and then Happy Time Murders is, like, one of the most disappointing films of, like, the last... 20 years for me because <laughs> like that movie i followed its production a lot because i was a henson dork i would read muppet wiki and i would hear about like oh the production like it was going to star cameron diaz at a certain point and then it moved on to like i think elizabeth banks and then she moved on to like a smaller role and like Catherine heigl even and any of those choices i think would have been much better than like mccarthy who i genuinely like as a comedic persona in theory. But the problem is, like, from what I've heard, it's kind of, like, on the down low, a lot of, like, her and her husband, Ben Falcone, who, like, makes all the bad Melissa McCarthy movies, they kind of took over that movie when she signed on. And I think that shows, very sadly. It feels like it's kind of like, oh, let's just really embrace the gimmick. I'm just like, oh, the puppets are going to come and all this other stuff. And it's going to be, like, wacky and raunchy and silly. And it's like, this should have just been, like, a fun, like, maybe slightly harder edged Roger Rabbit with puppets, but instead this is just like, it's abysmally unfunny and just like a real waste of talented performers. Like during the credits, they have like the, Oh, here's the behind the scenes of how we made this and all the work that went into it. And that just makes me feel so much sadder that all this time and effort that goes like an average Muppet movie is spent on this 
this like nothing burger of a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking terrible. But uh, let's repeat our titles for everybody out there, uh, in case you missed them. Uh, my good pick was the one-season, ten-episode uh, series on Netflix, The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. And my bad pick was uh, the film The Adventures of Elmo in Grouchland. And my good pick was Follow That Bird, and my bad pick was The Happy Time Murders. Yes, and uh, we'll be wrapping up the show here, but stay tuned to the very end, uh, as we're going to be picking our titles for next week. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But we want to thank some people first, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for the artwork for our show. I'll follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water. Uh, on various socials for all his great artworks. And also thanks to our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash DEDVpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to listen to bonus podcasts we put out every month, and also you get to uh, vote in polls uh, for individual topics or movies that we cover. And this week that we're putting this uh, episode out, you'll be able to pick uh, between uh, Adam's two bad picks for our upcoming 2022 wrap-up episode. That'll be the first episode of 2023, uh, where we'll be going back and looking at movies that came out in the year of 2022. And uh, Adam, they have to choose between The King's Daughter and Moonfall, right? Those are your choices? Those are the choices. I'm not looking forward to watching either, but I'm definitely sort of interested in both. I mean, I'll say this much. I have seen Moonfall, and there's a lot to talk about in Moonfall. Uh, It's very, very bizarrely bad. Um, But at the same time, I am fascinated by The King's Daughter. If you all don't know, this is a movie that was supposed to come out like in 2015. And it's been in like weird production delays for a while. And it's apparently about like... Pierce Brosnan plays uh, King Louis the Fifteenth. He has to kidnap like a mermaid to try and like steal its life force or something, and his daughter has to save the mermaid. <laughs> it's like what? That's <laughs> some dumb shit. I don't even know. Yeah, that's. I'm. I'm very curious to actually see that. But you know, whichever Moonfall or that, uh, whatever the patrons choose, we will cover. And uh, if you, like I said, contribute one dollar a month, you get to vote in a poll like that and help us choose which of those bad picks we'll be covering on that episode. But uh, for more of us, find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, you can also send emails to us uh, for larger feedback over at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. And you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd, satin out the Who's Tommy. And I also do some writing on marianithomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson, S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N, or on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. Yes, and uh, for more of us, in terms of our audio antics, uh, subscribe or follow us over on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society on that huge feed, you know, why not listen to all the other great shows on there? Plenty of fun ones. Uh, And you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for several, several episodes before we even join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't uh, contribute to the Patreon, we get it. Money can be tight sometimes. The totally free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around on your socials. That gets us more visibility out there. That gives us the rainbow connection to the lovers, the dreamers, and you out there. And especially after that endorsement. I mean, how can you not do it? If you don't do it, you're awful people. Yeah, Kermit's crying. Just like, why didn't anybody share the show? Kermit, loyal listener. Kermit's dead now. You guys did that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I changed voices one too many times. <laughs> you motherfuckers. <laughs> oh, well, on that note, Adam, it's time we did our picking for next week's episode. As we do at the end of every episode, Adam and I each, uh, you know, have switch off on the quality of good or bad, and we have two movies of that specific quality for the topic in question, and so we assign numbers between 1 and 10 for them, and the other person will pick a number between 1 and 10, and be like, okay, I'm going to pick number 6, and the other person will say, okay, that's closest to my choice at number 8, which is blank movie, so that ends up getting us our good and our bad feature, but... There is the Godfather rule, which uh, Adam still has a veto in his back pocket that he can use, just one single veto that he has to use before our next anniversary in May. He's been holding on to it. If he hears one of my two bad choices and he's like, you know what? I don't want to cover that movie. He can say, actually, I'll take the cannoli unless we have to go with whatever other choice is there. And we'll see if that happens uh, for the bad choices I have for our next topic, which will be Sigourney Weaver. We've been wanting to do this episode for a while. We're big Sigourney Weaver fans. We love her as an actress. And we're doing this in honor of uh, Adam's most anticipated movie of all time, Avatar The Way of Water. Which, hey, if it doesn't make like $2 billion, it's not going to break even. So, (laughs) fuck that movie. (laughs) And you were the one ticket James Cameron was hoping for. That's been mentioned in all these interviews he's been doing. Like, oh, you know, come on. I'm so big successful. But please, Adam, please see my movie. Please. Look, Titanic was huge. I'm king of the world. I love underwater filming now. I've changed the game. But this fucking asshole, Adam Thomas in Michigan, (laughs) like, I'm after his eight bucks. (laughs) But you're not going to get it, Jim. You fuck. (laughs) But at the same time, Adam, you're quite happy to at least have the excuse to cover Sigourney Weaver as a topic. Oh, yeah. She's kick-ass, dude. She's, She's a fucking icon. I love Sigourney Weaver. Anytime she shows up in anything, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, Sigourney Weaver. Yep, always a great presence. And yep. uh, you, I actually won't be doing any picking this week because our patrons over at patreon.com slash dedbpod chose between your two good picks in a poll uh, last month, and uh, they end up picking between uh, your choices of Working Girl and the ultimate winner of Galaxy Quest, which, hell yeah, love hell Galaxy yeah. Quest. Galaxy Quest is super it. fun. Yeah, and she's great in it. She's fucking great in it. It's one of her best comedic performances. For sure, for sure. Uh, but now, Adam... It's time for you to do my choices for bad picks, which I will just say up front, this one was a bit more rot for me in terms of just like quite the bad pick that would be like at least interesting to talk about with Weaver because I don't think she's done too many like bad movies and a lot of them aren't necessarily as interesting as others, but we'll see what you end up with as you uh, pick a number between one and ten for my two choices. Oh, since we're doing this because of Avatar 2, let's just go number two. Okay. Number one, um, I have a movie that she is definitely in, but more of a supporting player, but uh, this movie is incredibly, fascinatingly bad. From an interesting filmmaker who had a lot of potential, um, I'll just uh, say this in the way that the meme described it. That's Chappie. Ooh. Uh, no, I, I want to talk about Chappie. There's a lot of things to Chappie that I want to talk about. Uh, no, yes. I will not be taking the call. All right. Uh, well, the other side of things, over at number eight, I had a movie that I'd heard about, got like some festival buzz, and then died a quick death. That has like her and Robert De Niro and Killian Murphy in it, uh, called Red Lights. That's apparently about like paranormal investigators. Yeah, I haven't seen that either, but yeah, I, I remember that. Okay. Everything I heard was like, oh, there's a live interesting buzz around, and then it disappeared. And yeah, those who saw it were like, eh, it was a movie. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so uh, Galaxy Quest and Chappie. Oh yep. boy! All right, That's Galaxy Quest and Chappie. All right. <laughs> that we'll be talking about next time, everybody. But on that note, the episode's over. And just remember, podcasting's like a movie. Write your own ending. Keep believing. Keep pretending. We've done just what we set out to do. Woman! <laughs>